Exodus chapter 7, if you'd like to follow along, you can open your Bible or navigate on your device. Exodus chapter 7, verses 1 through 13 is our text. Topic, at ages 83 and 80 respectively, Aaron and Moses challenge Pharaoh to let God's people go. The title of our message, Old Guys Duel. Let's pray. It isn't great, but it's not that bad. Man, this is, this is going to be a rough crowd, I can tell. <laughs> Father, thank you so much for bringing us together here. What a joy it is to worship you, to sing together, to join as a chorus and bring praise before the throne of the living God. And now, Lord, your word, please inspire it by the presence of your Holy Spirit teaching us, ministering to each heart in that place where only you can communicate truth between the soul and the spirit. We trust you, Lord, because we know that's what you want to do, that's what you will do. May we have ears to hear. We thank you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. Kim Jong-un recently was quoted, the nuclear button is on my desk at all times. Donald J. Trump replied, I too have a nuclear button, but it's a much bigger and more powerful one than his, and my button works. We can laugh a little, but the threat obviously is all too serious. Japan's prime minister has called the prospect of a nuclear-capable North Korea absolutely unacceptable and said that the security situation facing his country is the severest since the Second World War. The prime minister urged the international community to apply increasing pressure to the rogue nation in an attempt to coerce its regime into giving up its nuclear ambitions. Pressure has been applied, but so far it's only strengthened Kim Jong-un's resolve to be a nuclear maniac. Egypt's pharaoh had no button to push. I doubt he had a desk. He was, however, holding God's people captive, and he was treating them with intensifying cruelty. God sent Moses and Aaron with a message for pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh refused again and again. Each time he refused, God applied increasing pressure, but it only strengthened Pharaoh's resolve against the Israelites. We're going to talk about this strengthening of Pharaoh's resolve and hopefully come to a biblical understanding of the frightening phrase, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. We're also going to see something in the story to apply to ourselves. If you're a Christian, you know that Satan is the God of this world. Non-believers are held captive by him. You and I are sent out with the gospel. It's a message of exodus from sin and from death into eternal life. The pharaohs of this present age do not give up easily. We're in for a spiritual fight if we wish to see folks moving from the kingdom of darkness they are born into to the kingdom of light they can be born again into. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, your God inspires you to remain resolved. Number two, your adversary incites you to reject your resolve. Let's take a look first of all in verses one through nine at God inspiring us to remain resolved. Now, I want to get right over the major hurdle we encounter in these verses. We've mentioned it before, but now it's directly in our path. It is the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. The Lord tells Moses in verse 3, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And in verse 13, we read, Pharaoh's heart grew hard. The hardening of Pharaoh's heart has been twisted by some to teach a determinism that makes Pharaoh a puppet in the hand of the sovereign God. They teach that God caused Pharaoh to act as he did. 
we reject that. Truth be told, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, when properly understood, teaches quite the opposite. The word heart refers most often to the inner life of a person. We would translate it mind or will. Language scholars point out that three different verbs are used in the various passages that speak of the hardening of Pharaoh's will. So you read this a lot. We'll we'll encounter this again multiple times as we continue in Exodus, Lord willing. And whenever the word there hardened, it, it, it could be one of three different verbs. They are translated hardened or strengthened or made heavy. After studying all their occurrences, scholars conclude that taken together, they convey the single idea that Pharaoh steadfastly refused to release the Israelites. One scholar therefore commented saying this, hardening someone's heart is about giving them the willpower or the resolve to do what they have already decided when other factors might have pressured them into doing otherwise. In some situations, this is associated with courage, in others, stubbornness. It was Pharaoh's will to refuse God's request. Each encounter with Moses served to strengthen his resolve to refuse. In spite of the signs performed by God, Pharaoh's will does not change. While he occasionally wavers when put under extreme pressure, he remains resolved in his opposition. Kim Jong-un would be described today as hardening his heart. And, and that's why, you know, a lot of times we, we read the Bible as if it's out of context, as if it's teaching something, you know, within its own uh, sphere and it has no context in the regular world. Kim Jong-un, we see this guy, pressure, 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 pressure. What happens? Each time it strengthens his position against the nations of the world. No one has the understanding that God is forcing him to do that. He doesn't get up and say, I'd like to relent, guys, but God is making me a nuclear maniac. Uh, no, we, we understand that. And, and whether sanctions will ever work or not, uh, we believe that that is a, a, a proper way to go about this. Let's put sanctions, let's make it tough on this guy. Let's force him to change his mind about this behavior. He's acting of his own free will, Every effort to pressure him only gives him greater willpower to resist. It could go either way, but right now, it's giving him this willpower to resist. The hardening of Pharaoh's heart is not about him being a puppet. It's the reverse. It's about him being emboldened to do what he already desires to do. Pharaoh was determined to defy God. He was not determined by God. Now, God went to incredible lengths to not violate Pharaoh's free will. Uh, We'll see as we progress through the 10 plagues, day after day after day, plague after plague, God is trying to apply pressure to, let, uh, to make Pharaoh let his people go. Uh, he, he respected his free will. He overruled it in the end in an interesting way, but he respected it. On solid biblical grounds, we can say that Pharaoh exercised his own free will and that God strove with him mercifully to try to save him. Then there's the argument from the character of God. If God determined that Pharaoh resist him with no genuine possibility of repenting, then God is a cruel despot who penalizes the behavior he himself brings to pass. You cannot cancel out that argument by glibly stating God is sovereign as if he can do something evil and call it good simply because he is God. If something is evil, it is evil 
whether God does it or men do it. And so you can't say, well, God does something that seems evil. He forces Pharaoh to do this. But even though it seems evil, it's really good because God's doing it. That, that's not true. That's ridiculous. A few weeks ago, I used the example. It's a good one of uh, President Nixon, former President Nixon, in his uh, talks with David Frost. When he looked at David Frost and he said, if the president does it, it's not illegal. That's the greatest thing I've ever heard, tell you the truth. And we react how? Well, that's ridiculous. That's incredible. But yet theologians come along and say, well, if God does it, it's not evil. And we think, oh, praise the Lord. No, it's just as ridiculous. And so God is not forcing Pharaoh against his will to harden his heart. It's very natural. We, we already understand what it's all about. It's just like any modern nation, North Korea or Iran, hardening their resolve against the world uh, to do what they have already decided to do. Now that we're no longer troubled by the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, let's see how this all works out. Verse one, so the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you as God to Pharaoh, and Aaron, your brother, shall be your prophet. Now, this sounds a little strange until you remember that the Pharaoh was considered to be a god. In his own court stood another man, Moses, who was speaking as God. That had never happened before. This was an absolutely unique time in the life of Egypt. The fact he spoke through Aaron only intensified the symbolism. If Moses spoke directly, Pharaoh might consider him a mere prophet of some lesser deity. But here was Moses speaking through a prophet the way God would speak. The theatrics of it communicated to Pharaoh that he was indeed being addressed by the God of the Israelites. Made you as God is better translated, made you a God in my stead. It's a technical term. It's used of men and women who act in God's place on God's behalf. While it would be confusing to say of Christians, you have been made as God, it is nevertheless true that we act in God's place on his behalf as we await the resurrection and the rapture of the church. As we represent Christ to the world, we are acting in God's stead. And so verse two, you shall speak all that I command you, and Aaron, your brother, shall tell Pharaoh to send the children of Israel out of his land. Moses' assignment was not easy, but it was simple. He only needed to speak all that God commanded him. Our assignment as servants is likewise not easy, but it is simple. If you're in full-time ministry, especially as a teacher of the word, you teach the whole counsel of the Bible, verse by verse, book by book. For all of us who can be used by God at any moment, we remain sensitive to the Holy Spirit, listening for him to guide us into what to say to others that will shine light into their darkness. Uh, I can't overemphasize this sensitivity to the Holy Spirit and, and the fact that God can guide and direct you into a line of discussion with people that you're sharing the gospel with. One of my favorite things about Jesus is that he would ignore direct questions. And a lot of times he'd be in a situation like with Nicodemus, where Nicodemus came at night and he said, we know that you're a man sent from God because we see the miracles you do. And Jesus just ignores that and says, you know, Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of heaven. Wow, where did that come from? The Holy Spirit was ministering to Jesus what to say to Nicodemus that would reach his heart. We need to have a, a faith to believe that rather than give somebody a canned answer, that the Lord knows their heart and what's going to minister to their heart. 
And so pause and pray and say, Lord, help me, and, and then just start talking. Start with Scripture. And um, you don't, I don't want to be rude to people, but you don't need to answer a person's question. What you need to do is minister to their heart. And that's, those are two different things. Because most of the time, when people come to you and say, oh, evolution, or oh, how could God, or whatever, that's not really the issue in their life. There's some other issue, something in their heart that God wants to address, uh, just like Nicodemus and some of these others that we read about. So remain sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Aaron, for his part, was going to repeat what God told Moses. Aaron did not have freedom to edit or to augment or to interpret the message. So too with us, we need to keep the message simple and not add all of our own exaggeration. Sometimes the best thing to say to people is just from the Bible itself. And we, we need to learn to be more concise. This is a big thing with us here. It's hard to say a lot in a few words, but it is a lot more powerful. And, you, and it's a lot more engaging. And so try to be that person that thinks, how can I say this in the most loving but direct way to get my point across? It's easy to talk to a person for 15, 20, 30, 45 minutes. It's hard in less than five minutes to get something across that is really powerful. Verse 3, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. God's confrontations with Pharaoh would serve to strengthen his will to resist and remain a cruel despot. It would reveal what was in Pharaoh's heart. Meantime, God would multiply signs and wonders, which while they would only make Pharaoh's heart heavier, would open the eyes of the citizens of Egypt to the majesty of Israel's God. Verse 4, But Pharaoh will not heed you so that I may lay my hand on Egypt and bring my armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. God has foreknowledge of future events. He knew how Pharaoh would respond. That foreknowledge does not determine how Pharaoh would respond. It doesn't cause Pharaoh to harden his heart. Even though Pharaoh would not heed the message, God would provide for his plan and get the Israelites out of Egypt. In ways that are deep and mysterious, God accomplishes his will without violating ours. And so when I talk about God not forcing Pharaoh to uh, act this way, it doesn't mean that God's plan is going to fail. In an overarching way, God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But he does it in these mysterious, wonderful ways that don't violate the free will of people. We call it God's providence. And the great example of it that I use is from the book of Esther. Those of you familiar with the story, you know that Esther was the queen of Persia at just the time that the Jews were going to be destroyed by uh, Haman. And her uncle Mordecai came to her and said, This is the time that you have been raised up so that you can act on behalf of your people. And we're like, yeah, look at that. And then he says something curious. He says, if you don't do it, help will come from another source. Wow. If she doesn't do it, then doesn't it seem like she's the perfect person? Of course. But she didn't have to do it. She could have said no. And what would have happened? Would all of history have crumbled? No. Mordecai Mordecai said no. God would bring help from another source. And so God does not violate our free will in order to get his will done. It's it's an amazing thing as you start to see this working in the word. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. 
This is quite an insight into the nature and character of God. He was simultaneously delivering his people and revealing himself to the non-believing Egyptians. Never forget that God so loved the world that he sent Jesus into it to die for whosoever would believe in him and thereby have eternal life. Holding that overriding truth in mind, we see him reaching out to the Egyptians, not taking pleasure in judging them. God wants to save. This is a basic uh, characteristic in the nature of God, uh, and, and we need to read that into these Old Testament stories. Greatest example of that, Nineveh. God says to his prophet Jonah, go to Nineveh, tell them in 40 days I'm going to destroy them. Jonah hated the Ninevites. He hated the Assyrian Empire. This should have been music to his ears. Instead, he goes down and he gets on a boat going the other way, and he has to get swallowed by a great fish before he gets spit up on the beach and is willing to do what God wants him to do. Why? Because he had the suspicion that even though his message was a message clearly of judgment, with no possibility of repentance, if Nineveh repented, God would relent. And that's exactly what happened. And at the end of the book, Jonah's sitting out on a hill mad that God saved those people. It is the nature of God to save. He wants to save. He desires to save. He sent his son Jesus to save. And we have to believe that and understand that in every story in the Bible. Verse 6, then Moses and Aaron did so, just as the Lord commanded them, so they did. What a great thing to have said of you in the end. Just as the Lord commanded him, so Gene did. That would be a great epitaph. As I get older, I think more about the epitaph I might deserve on my tombstone. I found the following actual but somewhat comical epitaphs. Uh, on the 22nd of June, Jonathan Fiddle went out of tune. Here lies the body of Jonathan Blake, stepped on the gas instead of the brake. And then this one, husbands don't laugh. I laid my wife beneath this stone for her repose and for my own. I'm warning you, there's nothing funny about that. Verse 7, and Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Is that old guy's rule campaign still popular? A few years ago, somebody gave me as a gift two old guys rule t-shirts. What an offensive gift. No, I'm just kidding. I enjoy that. I still wear them to do yard work. But anyway, I, I wore them proudly. It would have been a great t-shirt for Moses and Aaron to wear into Pharaoh's court. Old guys rule. D.L. Moody said, Moses spent 40 years in Pharaoh's court thinking he was somebody, 40 years in the desert learning that he was nobody, and 40 years showing God, what God can do with a somebody who found out he was a nobody. I love that guy. Have you found out that you're a nobody? You probably, we give lip service to it, but we all think that we're really somebody and that God is you know, happy to have us on his side. <laughs> and uh, just be content to be a nobody and let God use you as he will. Are you getting older? Well, of course, that's a redundant question. But if you're looking towards retirement, it should give you a lot more time to serve the Lord. When you think retirement, top of the list ought to be where or how you can be dedicated more, not less to the Lord. There's never a thing called spiritual retirement. So verse eight, then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, when Pharaoh speaks to you saying, show a miracle for yourselves, 
Then you shall say to Aaron, take your rod and cast it before Pharaoh and let it become a serpent. According to ancient Egypt online, Pharaohs and other prominent citizens of Egypt had ornate staffs that represented their stature and their authority. You've seen this represented in movies, not just the Ten Commandments, but all movies about Egypt. You know, where they're holding this ornate staff. A lot of times it has a cobra or something like that. Moses' rod was either the traditional shepherd's crook or the shorter rod that shepherds would carry to perform various tasks when they were shepherding. And these were the same rod uh, and, sh- and staff, whichever it was, that Moses had been already using in his work as a shepherd. This wasn't something special that was uh, carved out of, you know, the heart of a dying star or something like that. I mean, this was just the staff that he, ca- uh, he carried around with him. Either one, whether it was a rod or a staff, it seemed woefully inadequate. I mean, look at a staff from Egypt in a museum and then compare it to an everyday wooden staff or rod. Separate from this story, if somebody came to you and said, there's gonna be a confrontation between governments, one government is represented by this amazing, ornate, you know, powerful staff, the other is this piece of wood. Which do you think is going to win? Well, you'd obviously gravitate towards the bigger one. In the first and arguably the best Men in Black movie, Tommy Lee Jones shows Will Smith the Series 4 de-atomizer. Remember, that's a big, it's like a submachine gun looking alien weapon. But then he pulls out uh, the noisy cricket and gives it to him. It's about this big. It's smaller than a squirt gun. In the movie, uh, one of the Crocodile Dundee movies, remember when a guy comes up to him and pulls a knife? And he said, that's not a knife. He pulls his own huge blade. It's like 12 feet long or something like that. He said, that's a knife. And so that's the idea here. A shepherd's staff or rod seemed to be like a small knife or a noisy cricket. But it was just the weapon God needed to communicate that it is his nature to lead people and to care for them as a great shepherd. God's entire plan to save mankind is steeped in what appears to be inadequacy, but it is in fact strength because it alone can open the eyes of the spiritually blind. One example out of the thousands we could give from Scripture, we just got through the Christmas season. Does it make any real sense that the Savior of the world would be born to a virgin thought by everyone to have gotten pregnant while she was betrothed, that it would happen away in a strange manger, and that he would be greeted by simple shepherds? I think you get the idea. What to us on this side of the cross is such an amazing story, when you look at it bare bones, it seems ridiculous. What kind of deliverance can can that bring to people? And the answer is eternal spiritual deliverance. And so this is a very weird confrontation going on between a shepherd and the Pharaoh. In his classic devotional, this Jesus style, Gail Irwin lists unusual characteristics of our Lord Jesus Christ. He points out that he was a servant, that he did not lord over others, that he was humble, that he acted as a child. He was the younger, the last, the least. He used no force, had no reputation, and was obedient. Then he lists death as a characteristic in a chapter that he titled, Shepherds Don't Run. Everything about the Lord is upside down when you compare him to the way we normally think. 
God's entire approach to saving us is weird. For deity to take on humanity in order to be a substitute and die in our place, then offer salvation as a free gift for believing, that's contrary to our whole natural mindset. Now, we can see Egypt as a type of the world system ruled by Satan. All those things and people opposed to us are like mini pharaohs. Maybe at work or at home or at school or somewhere, you're dealing with a mini pharaoh, somebody who seems to be lording over you, controlling things, uh, very difficult, and you're representing Jesus in that situation. The eventual outcome is written in advance. We win, but along the way, we will be resisted and folks will harden their hearts against God. The shepherd who died is alive forevermore, still seeking to woo hearts by upside-down methods that put us in his stead as the least and as the last. I don't know about you, but I hate being treated least and last. It's not something that really warms my heart until I look at Jesus. I mean, really look at Jesus and understand uh, what he did to save me. Now, secondly, your adversary incites you to reject your resolve. Moses had expressed great reluctance to go to Pharaoh. At one point, he flat out told God, get someone else. For his part, rather than forcing himself on Moses, God answered his objections by implementing a backup plan using Aaron as Moses' mouthpiece. Might Moses lose his resolve in the face of continuing resistance from Pharaoh? He didn't, but it gives us the opportunity to examine ourselves and our own resolve. I don't know if you figured it out yet, but life is hard. It's harder for some of you than others, but we all have our share of suffering. If you serve the Lord, you have additional trials on account of the gospel. Everybody suffers, believer, non-believer, some in more incredible ways than others. If you're a believer, there's also persecution from the enemy because of the gospel. Might we lose our resolve in the face of continuing resistance from the pharaohs of this world? You all probably know someone who has walked away from the Lord in the midst of a severe trial. They just couldn't take it anymore. Maybe they haven't renounced Christ, uh, but you can tell they're not really living for the Lord anymore. They're bitter and resentful. Um, they're, They're just not the people that they used to be because of something that happened in their life that isn't in a good category. And so this is a very, uh, very important thing. The next few verses simultaneously reveal to us that our adversary will not relent, but that we should never lose our resolve, that we should never harden our hearts against God. And so verse 10, Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh, and they did so just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants, and it became a serpent. This word serpent can be translated snake or crocodile. No way of knowing which, but I favor the croc since they were so common in the Nile River, and it just seems to be a lot more dramatic to me. Rod, big crocodile. I'd be more afraid of a crocodile than a snake, probably. Maybe not you, but anyway. The rod is called Aaron's only because he was the one wielding it at the time. Uh, It's technically the rod of God in Aaron's hand. This Moses and Aaron thing tells me I can miss out on being used by God, but that God is never stymied by my disobedience. Moses missed out. It should have been him speaking to Pharaoh and wielding the rod. Aaron was God's afterthought to help Moses along. Can you think of a time you've missed out? Maybe God touched your heart in church about doing something or giving something, 
but you overlooked it, not in a sinful way, not in a, it just, it passed. And, and then you look back and say, oh, you know, sorry, Lord, I, I wish I had followed up on that. God's not angry with you for it. It's you that missed out on the reward of obeying God. God got it done using someone else. He's gracious like that. And so while things don't depend upon you, God really does want to use you. And it's a blessing to be used by God. And so just listen to God, follow through. Verse 11, but Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers, so the magicians of Egypt, they also did in like manner with their enchantments. In Disney's 1963 animated feature, The Sword and the Stone, there's a fun sequence where Merlin and Mim have a wizard's duel. They try to destroy one another by transforming into different animals, and each animal is deadly to the animal that the other one has just transformed into. And it goes on for a long time, very creative, until Mim transforms herself into a purple dragon, which was against the rules, but Merlin, thinking on his feet, transforms himself into a germ and gets inside of her and gives her some kind of a condition. And so he wins the wizard's duel. And you're thinking, what does this have to do with anything? I'm a grandfather, and you are subject to these movies again and again and again. <laughs> and so you might as well enjoy them. The wise men, the sorcerers, the magicians, this was a, a duel between them and the rod of God. Now, they were truly able to duplicate this. It wasn't mere sleight of hand. It wasn't like Penn and Teller. In fact, their names were Janus and Jambres. We know that from 2 Timothy 3.8, where Paul talks about two of them there uh, who came against Moses. Does it disturb you to hear that the devil can sometimes perform miracles? It does me. Nevertheless, we read in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9, the coming of the lawless one, that's the Antichrist, is according to the work of Satan with power, signs, and lying wonders. And so at least in that time, that future time, when the Antichrist is on the earth, the Antichrist and the false prophet will be able to perform miracles. And a lot of people are upset by that. They think, oh, no, we can't say that Satan has that kind of power. Um, but in a minute, I'll probably say it twice, but this is the better place to say it. We're going to see that Aaron's rod swallows up the other uh, crocodiles that are created by Pharaoh's guys. It doesn't say that he exposed their trickery or that he showed the mirror that they were using. It says that my crocodile ate your crocodiles. And so this all was really happening in a, an amazing uh, throwdown between these individuals. Now, the fact that Janus and Jambres could duplicate God's miracle strengthened Pharaoh's will to resist God. I mean, after all, maybe this was God at his best. Maybe Pharaoh's masters of the mystic arts were superior to the God of Israel. Let's digress for a moment. Until right then, there was no empirical evidence to suggest Israel's God had any power, let alone enough to deliver his people. God had left them in Egypt 400 years. They were forced into servitude and treated as slaves. Their deliverer had miserably failed in his first attempt 40 years earlier. He killed an Egyptian, causing him to flee as a wanted felon. Upon his return, their deliverer presented himself as a reluctant-to-talk shepherd trying to take on one of the world's greatest military powers. All he had in his hand was a rod. Now, the rod turning into a crock was the first sign that Israel's God had any power to worry about at all. 
Knowing what we know, looking back with perfect hindsight, we can see that those points of weakness were signs of God's power. We see them as God's restraint and his desire to communicate through grace and mercy and love. As I was writing this, that old chorus came to mind. You uh, old Calvary people will remember this. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs in his arms and carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. It portrays God as the great shepherd leading us and guiding us. And that is what God was going to do to the nation of Israel. Pharaoh could have seen it. He didn't, probably mostly because he never imagined that any God could act that way. I mean, there's a lot going on here that we overlook. When Moses comes in with his rod or his staff and says, I've, I've met with the God of Israel, and he's saying, let my people go. Pharaoh, he's no dummy. He can see what's happening. What, what Moses is representing is that the God of Israel is like a great shepherd who is going to lead those people out of Egypt. And though the Egyptians despised shepherds, shepherds had quite a reputation for being loyal and fierce and for giving their lives. As Gail Irwin said earlier, shepherds don't run. And so this confrontation wasn't going to be a military confrontation at all. And he could see something about Israel's God. Now, he thought Israel's God powerless. Boy, was he going to learn different because he was portraying himself graciously and lovingly as a shepherd rather than as some kind of a military leader. I mean, you know, Moses could have come in in armor or some kind of object that had magical powers to do things, but instead he came in as a shepherd. The Lord always comes as a shepherd leading us. Verse 12, every man threw down his rod and they became serpents. Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods. We're not told how many Egyptian rods there were, but we know there were at least two, probably several. The rod of God in Aaron's hand swallowed up the others. And so, as I said earlier, this was a, a real event. It, it, you know, he didn't expose them. He destroyed them. Verse 13, and Pharaoh's heart grew hard. He did not heed them as the Lord had said. The rod battle only strengthened Pharaoh's resolve. You can see how it would, even though... Pharaoh's rods got eaten, at least they were able to duplicate this, and so he thought that it was still a contest that he could win. Now, this tells us we're in a long, protracted contest against evil. Victory is assured, but battles may be won or lost along the way. One commentator said it like this, God's struggle with evil is real. God does not rid the world of evil with a flick of the wrist. There will be genuine conflict in moving a people from bondage to freedom. The way I've been putting it lately is to say that because of his long-suffering with sinners, not willing any should perish, God tolerates the evil in the world. That's great, except that you and I get caught up in all that, and we're called upon to press on serving God despite being treated as the least and as the last. In the midst of what seems defeat or suffering without relief, our spiritual resolve is tested. Isn't that what Job is about on some level? The devil contended that Job would lose his resolve to love and serve God if he suffered. Job had a great life. Uh, he was wealthy, he was healthy, he had a great family, he was sacrificing to God, he had a great reputation. I mean, he was, he was the guy, he was the man. And the devil said, if you allow him to suffer, he will curse you to your face, 
he will lose his resolve to love and serve you. And God said, no, he won't. And through it all, chapter after chapter after chapter, finally you get to the point where Job says, if he slays me, yet will I praise him. Job has his ups and downs. And some of you who go through suffering, you need to know that you're going to have your ups and downs. Other Christians think you only have ups. And they always want you to be up. And they share scriptures with you about being up. And it seems so easy, doesn't it? When you're not suffering. Uh, but when you're suffering, it's so hard. And so we want to be careful. We want to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. And we want to give people hope all the time, obviously, but we need to be realistic. Job got to the end, and he didn't lose his resolve. It was strengthened. And that's the point of our suffering, too, or one point of our suffering is that our resolve would be strengthened. Right now in my life, there's some things that I know God could do in the lives of others for their good and for his glory. It tests my resolve because it seems to be taking too long. I feel like I've thrown down his rod, won the contest because the truth is on my side, but the result is that hearts are hardened rather than softened. Have you ever felt that way? I hope you haven't, and I hope you don't, but I know that you will. Your adversary incites you to lose your resolve. He will never relent until he is uh, taken captive at the Lord's second coming and then eventually thrown into the lake of fire at the end of the millennium. In his 2017 speech at the Pentagon 9-11 memorial, President Trump depended on the word resolve no less than four times uh, in that short message to get his point across. Addressing the families of victims, Trump said, we can honor their sacrifice by pledging our resolve to do whatever we must to keep our people safe. Secondly, he said, we shed our tears in their memory, pledged our devotion in their honor, and turned our sorrow into an unstoppable resolve to achieve justice in their name. Thirdly, he said, here on the west side of the Pentagon, terrorists tried to break our resolve. It's not going to happen. And then leaning upon the word a fourth time, he said, woven into that beautiful flag is the story of our resolve. We have overcome every challenge, every single challenge, every one of them. We've triumphed over evil and remained united as one nation under God. America does not bend. We do not waver. We will never, ever yield. On 9-11, our resolve was strengthened as we collectively recognized and faced a great evil. Without diminishing the events of 9-11, allow me a little freedom to use it as a spiritual comparison in this last sentence. You are going to face 9-11 level trials and afflictions in your spiritual lives before you go to heaven. Let them strengthen, not weaken, your resolve to love and to serve God.